I wanted them to imagine that they were at the Battle of Gettysburg. You were there and you were around the campfire and you had no idea what was going to be the outcome. So you were writing your letter to someone that meant a lot to you the night before. What would you say? The letters that they wrote were so vulnerable and so extraordinary. And then when they sang that song, they'd had that personal experience with the music in a different way. Mm -hmm. And so they sang it differently. Welcome to Sing, Coach, Conduct, the podcast for singers and singing teachers. Hello, singers and singing teachers. Thank you for listening to another episode of Sing, Coach, Conduct. I'm your host, Megan Ferrison. This past week, I had the privilege of being invited into the home of Virginia Kerwin, known to many as Ginny Kerwin. I first met Ginny in 2006 when she was the interim director of the CMU Women's Choir during the sabbatical of the full-time director. But I've known about Ginny for a long time, heard stories about her inspirational leadership in the classroom and in organizations like MSVMA, where she was the executive director for 20 years. Ginny is a visionary. She imagines possibilities and works to bring them to life. The experiences and ideas she offers her singers and organizational members are carefully crafted, well thought out, and they come from a place of true heart and authenticity. I really think this interview is going to open your mind to new ideas and inspire you to try new things. When did you know that music was going to be at the core of who you are and what you would be doing in your life? Wow, that's a good question. I just always, like from a little girl, I like to sing. My parents gave me a toy piano when I was four I still have the, the picture of it from Christmas, and I just like to bang away on it. So I started taking <laughs> piano lessons when I was in first grade. My first grade, my first piano teacher, her name was Miss Ember, and I remember she wore platform sandals, and I would always stare at her shoes when I had my piano lessons. <laughs> and then uh, that's just all I did. I mean, I, I just there was never a question that I wouldn't do music. I, I really was in band. I didn't sing in choir till I was in high school. Um, my band director was my piano teacher, and whenever he had a new instrument and he didn't, he wanted somebody to play it. He would say, "Oh, here, I want you to learn how to play this." So I was in a brand new elementary school when I was in sixth grade, and he wanted to start a band there. So I played sousaphone, and I hyperventilated all the time. <laughs> So that didn't work. So then he brought a string bass over and that worked. So I learned how to play the string bass in sixth grade. And I was in a little combo in sixth grade. I was the drummer. So, you know, there I'd sit with the trap set and I figured out how to play drums. And then in middle school, he wanted me to learn how to play the bassoon. So I took private bassoon lessons and learned how to shave my own reeds. And I went to camp in high school at Williamsburg, Virginia for bassoon. I played bassoon in college because not many people play. If you're and if you're decent, you get to be in the top band. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of fun. But then in high school, um, I, you know, I just always really liked to sing, and I didn't, I didn't know. I just sang. I didn't know anything about what it was, what kind of value my singing had. And when I stopped taking piano lessons, 
um, I thought, oh, maybe I want to take voice lessons. But my mother said, we spent so much money on all those piano lessons. You're not getting any voice lessons. <laughs> so my father, who was always my my biggest champion, he said, well, I'm going to go to the Wilmington Music School. I grew up in Delaware. And I'm going to have them hear you sing, and then they can they can kind of advise us if they think you should be taking voice lessons or not. So I went in and sang for them, and they gave me a full scholarship. Mm. So I studied privately in high school, won some um, contests, singing contests in high school. And then I went to college thinking I was going to be a professional singer like a lot of choir directors think. <laughs> and so I'd get this education degree to fall back on. And then when I was in college, I fell in love with elementary music. I loved teaching elementary music. And I never even dreamed I'd be a choir director. Mm. And, I, and my co college choir director, um, Joseph Husty, I mean, he was just an extraordinary human being. And the conversations we would have were just amazing. And I remember he followed a, a choir director that was very disciplined, and they had a music supervisor. And so the, they interviewed me, and I got the job. And it was just great. I had this monster size music room, and that was back when you would teach. And I would, for every class, I would have an outline of what we were doing that day in class. And then I would give suggestions that the teacher could do in the classroom to follow up for next week's. And they did it. And they came into music class with their children and participated with their children. So that was just a different mindset then. Well, it's so nice because so many teachers have to completely make up their curriculum. They have to start from nothing. So to yeah. walk into a program where the curriculum right. is already established. And, you know, they had auto harps and guitar. I mean, they just had everything. I could take them on field trips. And so they had their music series there. Well, when I took my Methods classes, she did not advocate for any specific music series. You just had to to pick a song and, and then you would teach some thing about it. So I opened the textbook up and there it is on the opening page, the name of my um, advisor from college. Huh. She co-authored the textbook huh. and, and the other co-author was the man whose job I took. Wow. So then I was so grateful. I realized what an incredible position I had been gifted. Mm-hmm. So that was just, I just loved teaching elementary music. I loved it, just loved it, loved it. Then, I, of course, I raised a family. And and then when I went back to, to teach again in Big Rapids, they were looking for someone to grow their music program because due to cutting of funding and, uh, and other reasons, their choir program had just dwindled down to just the bare bones, nothing at the high school. Hmm. So I said, okay. I would do that. And we had 13 kids that met at lunchtime on Thursdays for 20 minutes. That was my choir. <laughs> and nobody wanted to sing. It was like taking your clothes off. I mean, they didn't. Those middle school kids were not interested in singing at all. So what I did was I developed a performing arts curriculum. And in none of them had ever, the kids that I had, I had all the kids that weren't in band. And in like... Divided up by four, they, they'd be having nine-minute periods. Excuse me, nine-week blocks. And um, I taught them how to play a recorder. None of them had ever had that in elementary school. Mm -hmm. I bought enough drumsticks for everybody so they could learn how to read rhythm. 
And um, <laughs> if you if you messed up with the drumsticks, you didn't get to use them. I had no discipline problem because every boy in my class wanted to be a drummer. <laughs> and then in and then in eighth grade, we did we did one act plays, and I I learned that if if children will trust you, they'll be vulnerable. Mm. And once they trusted me, then they would do anything. Then singing was wonderful for them. How did you get them to trust you? I don't know. I mean, I just was me. I, you know, you have to value every child. Every child that walks through the door, you have to value. And I'm very disciplined, but they still somehow knew that I cared about them. How do you think you showed that to them? You said they somehow knew. Well, you know, you're who you are as a person. I, I always like ask questions about people's life, not just about, so how's it going? So I hear you're on the baseball team. Oh, yeah, you got a home run. Well, just talking about them as human beings and not just seeing them as a means to an end. Hmm. Can we back up for a second when you talk about teaching elementary? Uh-huh. What did you love about teaching elementary music? Because it is definitely its own beast. It's its own thing. And you have taught all levels. I mean, at this mm-hmm. point, you have taught, you know, from age, you know, five and or under to, um, to people who have gone well into retirement age. So what is it about that age group or that curriculum that really was magnetic for you? Well, at the time I was teaching, I didn't know I didn't know then why I liked it so much. But but now that I'm older and I n- know how I taught choir, I taught it more like a general music teacher because in general music you bring in everything. So you bring in creative writing and you bring in cultural experiences and you tell your stories through your music and you can be physical through your music and you can dance. And that just appealed to me. I mean, I mean, I'm, they didn't have ADD tests when I was a child, but I got all A's in my academics in fifth grade and got all bad scores in my, my self-control because I was <laughs> social and up. And, and so, you know, teaching general music at this very organic, active, always participatory activity, I loved. So then when I started teaching choir, I teach choir a lot like that. Mm-hmm. And that, and that was not, when I started teaching choir, that was not the way most people taught choir. Mm. You know, no, most people were not putting their kids at that point in a circle to teach. Mm-hmm. So by putting kids in a circle to teach, then I can have a one-on-one with every kid. It's very interesting how you pulled your, your elementary, um, that approach into um, older levels, but still treating those kids... Uh, appropriately for their age, but grabbing all this great, all these great strategies from but elementary you know, music. I didn't even think of them as strategies. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just did it mm-hmm. the way that I feel felt right for me to do it. I mean, I needed to be authentic as a teacher. So I, I taught the most authentic way for me. So you ended up at Big Rapids. Mm-hmm. And uh, what was the choir program like there? Well, that's where there was only these 13 kids yeah. that met at lunchtime. And then eventually, once I, we, we gained trust with one another, they ha- I had to trust them. They had to trust. I mean, that's a big part of it for the teacher. You have to trust them, too. It's not just they're trusting me. 
And so then eventually it morphed into, well, now we're going to have choir every day. Because mm-hmm. I really, that was the goal all along anyway. The 10-year school plan, they wanted to have 6, 12 choral music. And um, I became very convinced, especially at the middle school age, because they're so physical, that if I could, if they would be willing to hire a dance teacher to team teach with me in choir, that would be the ultimate because they sang in tune when they were moving. They were more engaged when they were moving. And so our, the school district agreed to hire a dance instructor and she would come two days a week. And so we developed this cur- curriculum or thematic curriculum. That was another thing that I started thinking about if we had a theme for the year. So the first theme we had was um, where in the world did my family come from? And so all the music in all the classes, so the first day of school they came in, they had to fill out a survey. And then what the answers they didn't know they got from their parents, which was great because they went home, their parents, you know, where did, where did grandma come from? And do you know what, what this and that? And so it was a way to pull parents in from the get go about, you know, into the choir thing. Mm -hmm. And so then all the music we sang all year was for each class was based on the cultural background of the students wow and so the and the dances were too so in our choir concert at the middle school you know they'd sing a song and then they would do a dance from a country from and I remember at the Christmas concert this grandma came up to me and crying after the concert and said I haven't heard that Polish carol since I was in Poland Mm. so it was just beautiful and then in our pops concert I took all my leaders from the eighth grade and we went to Malachi Music. That's when we, where we used to buy our music. And all the pops, we had done a survey to see what music, pop music was popular when their parents were in high school. Mm-hmm. And so we tried to pick music that represented their parents' experience in school. And all the, that was the parents' favorite concert all year. So you took them to the music store and, ha- and like helped them yeah. find this stuff. Yeah. That is just wonderful I mean it's it's so almost like obvious to do right but at the same time I mean in the sense of um we get so caught up in doing the things that are right in front of us that and here you are taking your kids to a music store to find you know music that represents their family and their heritage and 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 by saying that it seems so obvious it's like well duh why wouldn't we all do that and that's how I feel Jenny when I hear you talk about a lot of the things that you do because you're like well I just do them because they feel right to me and and I just every time you say something I think well why aren't we all doing that you know (laughs) because they're just wonderful ideas um and in fact people have referred to you as being a visionary oh (laughs) so why do you think that is I always like to I always, even with my families, well, what if, what if we could do it that way? Or what if we didn't have the the dining room table there? What if we didn't have a dining room table? What if we just sat around and, I mean, just let's explore life differently. And it doesn't have to always be rigid the same way all the time. For me personally, that makes life exciting. Hmm. And then you have, you know, you have different students every year. You have, they have different gifts. They have different family situations. They have different emotion, the emotional needs. They have different voices. So the music you pick or the experiences you provide have to accommodate 
for everybody. How do these ideas manifest um, in your into your your programs? How you the music you program, the presentation of the program. Well, when I taught high school, I mean, I you're kind. Of, all of us are kind of event. Um, evolving creatures. It's all an evolution of who we are. And so everything I do now, I didn't do, you know, 25 years ago, because I wasn't the person that I am now. But even when I was teaching high school, I was just fascinated by um, interdisciplinary teaching. And, And I think I realized that myself. Like, for example, we went through a time in public schools where everybody had to read, which is so important. And in my high school, you had to read. We had to sit with our kids a certain time of the day and read for 10 minutes. Well, then I got to thinking, wow, you know, a lot of these kids are really connecting to this. So then I took this fabulous class in interdisciplinary teaching, and he gave us this. It was all project-based learning, project-based learning. And so... I got to thinking, well, what if once a semester, everybody had to do a project related to one of the pieces of music we were doing? So what if, um, and they could choose whatever the project was, because this, this list I got from this class had like 50 different kinds of projects. And so I remember one girl was a figure skater, and this was in my treble choir, and so she had us record one of the songs we were singing, and she choreographed a figure skating routine to it and that's she showed us that video for her final project Mm -hmm. um some kids would go out and and do it take maybe we were doing a renaissance madrigal and they would go down to playscape in town that kind of looks like a castle and they would they would do interviews i mean they just came up with really creative things and sometimes i specifically required what it was and sometimes they had carte blanche one time at a concert we had like a science fair after the concert. So every kid had their project set up at a table and then the parents and the audience could go around and talk to the students about why they chose to do that project related to that piece of music. Hmm. One time uh, my tenor bass choir was doing tenting on the old campground. And so their project was, um, I wanted them to imagine that they were at the Battle of Gettysburg on, it didn't matter which side you were on, but you were there and you were around the campfire and you had no idea what was going to be the outcome, so you were writing your letter to someone that meant a lot to you the night before. What would you say? The letters that they wrote were so vulnerable and so extraordinary. And then when they sang that song, they'd had that personal experience with the music in a different way. Mm -hmm. And so they sang it differently. And one boy came in and he'd taken a brown paper bag and he'd burned all the edges to make it look like old paper. And he'd, you know, written it out. They all wrote them out by hand. Nobody handed anything into me. And that wasn't a requirement. There were no typed letters. They were all handwritten. Mm -hmm. You know, it just, one time we were singing, we were singing at the big music conference in Ann Arbor. And my treble choir was, and we were doing Salut Printemps by Debussy. And it just, the color, the tonal color just was not getting there. <laughs> it just was bright, and it, you know, we talked about it, and I, they just were brilliant women. And they were, it was just such a great group. So I said to them, I want you to, 
um, just go and do some, your project assignment here is to um, find some painting from the impressionistic period that you think fits with this song. And some girl brought in a Monet painting of flowers or something. And so we put it up there and, okay, when you sing this, it needs to reflect this painting. And then we never struggled with the, color, the tonal color anymore. Because hmm. you had to feel it and visualize it. You didn't just mechanically reproduce it. From a practical standpoint, how did you balance rehearsal time with project creation or taking the well, time they, to dig Well, they only in. did once, one a semester. I mean, I'm making it sound like we did it every day. We didn't. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite projects that I did with this advanced, my two advanced groups, in the middle of the year, after the Christmas concert, or the holiday concert, we call them Christmas concerts, and <clears throat> the holiday concert, there's this downtime. Like, what are you going to do with the kids? Because they'll come back after Christmas, so you don't really want to start the music yet. I don't hate it showing videos. So with these two classes, I would choose five, um, four or five pieces of music that I thought were accessible for them. And they would choose which one they liked, and they had to choose a conductor. They had to choose a scribe. And fortunately, in the, I always had somebody that played the piano. And then they had to rehearse that piece of music. And then during exam week, which was in January, it would be like, choral festival they had to wear their uniforms they were doing a performance for me and then I used the MSVMA rubric to adjudicate and that would be their grade Mm. and to be sitting in the my office and listen to their their conversations it was such an affirmation as a teacher because they were doing all the things that I would do with them or they were saying all the things that I would say but they were saying it now and they were putting their twist on it Mm. so that was one of my favorite projects we did. But now in my community choir situation, that was your first, that was your question you originally asked. You know, now I've grown to understand how important it is to bring the community into what you do. Because when I was teaching school, the parents had to be there and I never thought that much about it. You know, it was like family sharing time when you had your concert. But now I conduct a community group and it's so important for the people that take time out of their lives to come and hear us, to be connected to what we're doing. And not everybody that comes to the concert maybe is going to make the connection through what they hear, because a lot of people are visual. So I did away with risers probably five years ago, because I kept thinking about when you come to a concert and see risers on the stage, and this isn't negative because anybody that, you know, I did this too, and you see the acoustical shell, you immediately say, I'm going to a concert. It says concert. It, it doesn't say experience. It just says concert. And I want my concerts to be an experience for my singers and for the audience. So that we build platforms now before our concerts. And we still are levels. We still have maybe four rows, but their configuration on the platforms is not in a straight line. Mm. And sometimes they're fluid. They might be in a curve. Sometimes they might be angular, just depending on our theme. We use a lot of rear projection. Um, Tell me more about that, about the use of rear projection. One song we did at one concert was called Music in My Mother's House. And 
women have stories and women are storytellers. They're, you know, they're the matriarchs. They, and they remember in their own homes how music influenced them. So they were to send me a picture from their own personal family or their um, relatives, but it had to be in, in showing engagement with music. So I received tintype pictures of relatives from the 1800s, and they were out mm-hmm. in the field, and all the women had those long dresses with the high necks in black and their hair all quaffed on the top, and there they are playing a piano or playing a fiddle or something. Those were some of the pictures. Some were of a woman and her sister playing the piano together or their whole family um, singing Christmas carols together. So I put this, all of these videos together and they were visually shown when we sang Music in My Mother's House. And of co- and then, of course, in the program, maybe the question, I can't remember, maybe the question was, how was music in your house? So the audience is feeling like they're, that memory is a part of them, too. Mm. And I remember, um, of course, all the singers wanted to see. They wanted to see the PowerPoint. Oh, I can't wait. To, you know how it is. You sent your picture, and you want to see how it fits with the music. Yeah. <laughs> so at our dress rehearsal, I said, we're going to watch the video while you sing it because you can't watch it when you're performing. And they wept because music in their mother's house meant so much to them. And to see this collection of experiences in different people's homes, um, that, that made the music have, I think, have a different meaning to us as singers and to the audience as um, being a part of what we were doing than if we just sang it. Mm-hmm. Wow. It's kind of a way to um, direct your imagination. I, we've done, we've done, um, I remember we did a patriotic concert a couple years ago and I like to, when it's possible to have the audience sing with us. Well, when you're doing patriotic concert, you know, a lot of the tunes you're going to do, people know. And one of the men, that's a man, that's a friend of mine who is kind of, um, not, doesn't express his emotions a lot, um, his wife told me that she looked over at him when they were singing and he just, the tears were coming down his eyes as he sang this piece. And so for your audience to be able to be emotionally engaged, like you are as a performer, mm-hmm. there's that symbiosis then. And the whole room is filled with the experience. For me now at my age, that's so important to have happen. Mm. I mean, wouldn't it be great if everybody could go to a concert and just find peace it's an experience just to be in the room with you. I know that our listeners can't see us right now, but I'm tearing up listening to you talk about this stuff because you bring so much of yourself, but then also you bring so much of other people into the experience of Mm -hmm. performance and music. It's such a gift and something we can all learn from. Mm -hmm. Um, how important is literature, is the selection of literature to the success of your program? Uh, That's the key. I mean, once you know what your theme is, then you have, I mean, obviously you have to find the right music and you have to have a balance in the program between fast and slow. And you want to, um, not just sing all current pieces of treble literature, although, you know, it's harder to find a lot 
the further back you go in musical history. But there is a lot. I mean, there is music back there. So sometimes, you know, sometimes I will know right away what we're going to sing. Oh, I've got this idea. We're going to sing blah, 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 blah. And now other times I get the idea and it just takes me a long time to get the exact right piece of music. I mean, I'm getting ready to, I'm starting to plan our holiday concert. And I'm, I'm kind of, in my imagination, can see how it can go. But, but um, I haven't chosen all the music yet. But, yeah, the music is essential. So for people that just um, kind of sifting through their pieces and they reach into the file cabinet, they look through something and say, that's good enough, what would you say to them? It has to start with, well, it, it has to, there's so, so many things it has to teach. Um, I took this fabulous class one summer at Calvin University. It was one of those triple pace classes where you went eight hours a day for five days and then you got one credit for it. And Anton Armstrong taught it long, long, long time ago when he was on the faculty at Calvin. <clears throat> and one of the sessions was, how do you choose repertoire? And I still have those notes from that class hmm. because you must choose music that teaches something. It has to have some redeeming value. It has to teach something. So does it, um, what is, the things you have to take into consideration? What's the range? What is the, the singing range of your choir? You don't want to pick something that's in their passaggio. If everything rests in their passaggio, it's going to be a train wreck. Um, if you're dealing with children, you have to understand where the natural range is for them. And so much music is not written in that beautiful lyrical part of their voice because you hear children's choir singing everything from middle C up to G. That's the worst place for little children to be singing. Mm -hmm. um, so you have to know your choir and know, you know, the strengths of your sections. Um, do you have really good readers? Do you... Did your choir sing in two? Can you do a five? Can you do a piece that's in five parts? Or are you better to do a piece that's in two parts? The text, if you can't live with the text, if you couldn't put the text on your wall and savor it every minute of every day, then why would you be singing it? Hmm. How can you relate to a text? How can you relate to a piece of music that sings the same three words over and over again? And they're not even words, they're just vowel sounds or something. Hmm. So the, the, the text has to be important. Then you have to have a balanced program. Some new music, some old music, some fast music, some slow music. Um, I, yeah, I think there's a real gift to be able to have a balanced program and then have it all, for me, have it be a part of our theme and, and kind of emotionally be able to see where it's going. You're the founding director of Voca Lyrica, mm -hmm. which is a, um, a women's ensemble mm -hmm. based in Big Rapids. Right. Um, and you are getting ready to celebrate your 21st season, correct? Right. Mm -hmm. Tell me what you were working on before the pandemic occurred. We've done a lot of traveling. So lots of times what we do in our concert revolves around maybe our travel project for that year. So um, I had been at a national ACDA conference and ran into a former student that was teaching in California. And he said, Jenny, you've got to do this piece with your women's choir. It's called The Journey of Harriet Tubman. And it's written by my friend Ron Keene. Well, this conversation was way before the movie came out, way before th this renewed interest in Harriet Tubman that we, I mean, we all know her name now. Back mm -hmm. then I kind of remembered her name. 
So I went back and I, <clears throat> I listened to, it was written for SATB originally, and then he had rescored it for Travel Voices. And so my friend Sandra Snow does the incredible Women's Chamber Ensemble at MSU, and I talked to her, I said, what do you think about doing a collaboration um, with our choirs? And she thought it was a great idea, and I was so feeling so blessed that we would all get to be together and do this. And then we invited um, a choir from Traverse City, then we invited the um, Eastern Michigan University Women's Choir, and then another small women's community choir from the Holland area. And so we all prepare this fabulous piece, and some of the choirs were able to network with the composer. And we decided we really need to have a panel discussion um, before the concert, so we invited um, Stacy Gibbs um, to come hmm. to speak on the panel, and Eugene Rogers, and then Sandra would going to be on the panel and the composer and then I would kind of MC. It was going to be great and there would be about 150 singers and it was on this Saturday on the 14th of March and we were also doing the concert just my choir on the next day because we wanted our community to experience this fabulous piece of music. So in a year in advance Wendy and I my friend from Traverse City whose choirs were going we traveled to the east coast and we followed the Harriet Tubman Trail up from Cambridge, Maryland, all the way up. And um, so that was kind of in preparation so that I could, I, because I wanted to be able to teach this piece of music with some authority or having, and then I could share with them these travel experiences, which were some extraordinary pictures. So we did all this preparation in the spring and... Wendy and I had gone down to rehearsals at MSU and they were talking with the composer and we were just all so excited. And on Tuesday, the week before our concert, Michigan State University said, we are having no more face-to-face -face events, that which meant that choir, that concert had to be canceled. Oh, such a disappointment. We just had our dress rehearsal two days before. And so I was, you know, hanging on by a thread. Well, we'll still do our concert in Big Rapids. And then I knew in 24 hours that we couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. Just, you know, watching the news. So we canceled our concert, or I canceled it on Wednesday. And then Friday is when the country sets down. So we'd never done that music. Hmm. And that's what, we, that's what happened to us before. And then we haven't sung really in a concert since December of 2019. So everybody is really so excited excited to sing again in the fall every time I see one of the choir members I can't wait to come back I can't wait to sing again yes oh my gosh it is there's so much joy I mean just filling us up and, and anticipation so what is the first thing you'll end up doing when you come back um you mean concert wise yeah so we're gonna have our our holiday concert <clears throat> but um uh, the Traverse City Choir women's choirs um, is going to collaborate with us. And so we're going to be um, creating singing partners across our choirs. And we're going to the, have the first part of Vocal Lyricus concert is going to be kind of a transition from COVID into where we are now. And so the music is going to reflect that transition. So we're, usually we would start our Christmas holiday concert out with David Wilcox. Oh, come all you faithful with brass, the audience singing, we're singing the desk camp. But I want us to transition to that. So that's what, so this collaboration will be that 
like 20 minute musical trans transition. And then we'll go and sing at their concert in December so that we'll be doing this together. And then we'll do, we're going to do the Harriet Tubman piece that we never got to sing um, at our June concert next year. What's really interesting, uh, this just made me feel so wonderful, even though we're still going to sing it. When I shared with some of my singers that we were going to do it, and they said, well, you know, we don't really have to do it because it was the journey was what that music was about. Singing it at the end was just at the end of the journey. So mm. that just was very affirming to know that they valued the creation of that concert as much as they did the concert. Because so often we think of the concert as being the be-all and end-all when the process and the journey to get there, if it's um, filled with value and wonderful experiences, then it's if we don't get to be there at the end, it's okay. Mm. We are often so focused on the end result, on the right. concert, on right. the program, right. that sometimes we can lose sight right. of, the, of the process. I'm so glad that you said that. Describe yourself as a conductor. I think I'm a horrible conductor. <laughs> when I, I, do, I mean, I just never, I mean, that's the one thing I regret is that I didn't really have formal conducting take formal conducting lessons. When I was an undergraduate, the only conducting class I took was with was what everyone took, instrumental majors and choral majors. I never had like a choral mm-hmm. conducting lessons. And so, I mean, my singers say I'm fine, but I always think, oh, God, wonder what I look like. Were there any experiences outside of the classroom that helped you to become a better music educator? I cherish the times when I remember my experiences on the University of Michigan All-State Camp um, Junior Division, I had the privilege of working with um, four extremely respected um, educators. And, and I'll just tell you who they were because, I mean, they're all ex- respected. Um, I worked with Sandra Stegman, whose husband, she and her husband um, were the um, they were the original owners of Musical Resources. And she also taught at Bowling Green. She was the, the in charge of that program. And then Eric Wangeman did the boys. This is when he was a first year, right out of college. And um, Norma Freeman, that's when she first moved to Michigan. And Wendy Wolfschlarf, who taught in Traverse City. And Bob Sindrick from Celine taught with us. And Sandra's model for teaching was that we were all section coaches and we would go to the rehearsals in the morning and our responsibility was to sit with our section and sing with our section and to be acutely aware of any problems that were musical issues that we heard in our section. And then we'll all, we would all meet for lunch and then she would work, she would ask us, I mean, her Sandra was in charge of the program, Sandra Segman, and she would generally want our input before she planned her afternoon rehearsal. Hmm. So her afternoon rehearsal then was based on all the input we provided at lunch. So we felt so valued. We we were a team. We were all equal. It wasn't like we were just her lackeys. She wasn't afraid to ask your opinions. No, no, right. 
even though she was fabulous. Oh, she was extraordinary. Yes. And so that was fat. That was a wonderful collab. That was one of my early experiences in collaborating, which I loved. And then each of us had a small ensemble out of the big group that we conducted. So that was great because then we used to got to choose repertoire that we got to teach that we were part of the big concert. And then we had sectionals also. So I loved that experience and being on the campus of Interlochen, just soaking up all of that atmosphere was just extraordinary. I also loved, um, I had the grand opportunity of being adjunct faculty at two universities. I was at your alma mater, Central Michigan University, where I met you for the first time, Mm -hmm. um, taking Alan Gum's sabbatical, and I worked with the women's choir. That was just that was great. I mean, that just reinforced with me how important it is to value the human because when you make the human caring connection, then people will be on your team. And so the wall, the, the wall that could have been there between the singers and me, this foreign entity coming in, trying to take the place of their beloved conductor, were easier to navigate because we we had that kind of a relationship, Mm -hmm. a human relationship. And then I also taught choral methods for a semester at GVSU, Grand Valley, and I also observed student teachers. I loved observing the band students. I mean, because I was with choral people all the time, so I loved being able to have conversations with them. So those experiences, really, I'm a better person because of them. In addition to being the founding director of Vocalyrica uh-huh. for 21 years, you also um, were the executive director of the Michigan School of Vocal Music Association, uh-huh. MSVMA, for 20 years. Uh-huh. So what did you learn in all that time of being in that leadership position? I learned that we all are at our best when we feel valued. Yeah. And so I, th- I, th- I worked really hard at doing that or trying to do that, to be, to honor everyone that I met and value them as a, a, a person, not just as a choir director. I mean, you're, I mean, I think when you're a choral director, that's kind of like being a minister. I mean, you're a minister of music. I mean, it's an artistic calling, but you're also, there's this human part of you underneath that that's, we all struggle, we all have self-doubt, and I just think it's important for leaders to validate people they're leading. So it just reinforced, that whole experience reinforced in my mind and in my heart how important that is. I know that things won't always be perfect when you're in a leadership position, mm-hmm. especially in something that is so um, public as being the executive director mm-hmm. of MSVMA. Not everything is going to go the way that you mm-hmm. want it to go, and and you will experience joy and disappointment and mm-hmm. all of those things. But when you did experience a disappointment or a struggle, how were you resilient? How did you bounce back from that and keep going? I, I do a lot of reflection. When I, on a personal level... When I have had a bad day, because I had to drive, the last 10 years I worked for MSVMA, I had to drive like 25 minutes to work and from home. I tend to um, talk to myself when I drive, and so I'm kind of a therapist for myself. (laughs) And so, you know, 
trying to talk through what, why that happened, how that happened, mm. and then understanding that everybody's different and everybody comes to situations with different baggage. And I, I can't know what experiences other people come to the table with. I just know that I'm at the table with them. It's really important for me to put that into perspective so then I can move on from it and not be mired down in it. In that way, are you practicing grace and forgiveness of yourself? Is that kind of what you're describing yeah, in a way? Yeah, I have to say, Jenny, cool your jets. <laughs> And, you know, we're all perfectionists, and not everybody's ideal of perfection is the same as mine might not be the same as yours, and my, my life focus might be not different than yours, or what I really think is important to happen might not be what you do. And so that was humbling for me because I had to learn to respect the fact that not everybody would see what was best for the organizations through the same lens that I did. Does being a woman influence the experiences that you had being in a leadership position? The only time at the very beginning when I was executive director, all the people on the board were men. And I remember at one of the meetings I brought, it's my nature to always bring a treat because I like <laughs> to bake. So I brought something and I, if it was my women's choir, I would bring a treat. That's just who I am. And one of the men said, Oh, mom brought dessert. And that didn't set well with me. Because I wasn't their mom. I was, and you know, we were all, the, we were all leaders together. Mm -hmm. But that's the only time. I mean, I, but I have to say, I mean, I've been blessed because I have never been, I, I guess I'd have to think really hard to remember a time when I was victimized because I was a woman. I, I feel like I was always able to be the best of who I was and it had no gender identity. Mm. You talked earlier about being a um, a natural singer. Mm -hmm. You uh, and and this this was in our conversation before the mm -hmm. official interview, but you said that you really didn't even know you could sing. You know, you started playing piano and mm -hmm. you had done all these other things and then you started singing in high school, but you really hadn't learned how to deconstruct the voice, how to understand it. When did you learn how to do that and how to communicate that to your singers so that they could become better singers? Well, I just was passionate about musical theater. And when I grew up, Julie Andrews, was just the be all and end all and all the musicals and I wanted to sound like Julie Andrews and I wanted <laughs> don't to, we all <laughs> and you know musical th I just I think I like musical you know now when I look back on my life I like musical theater because it told a story I liked opera um also um probably because of the theatrical part of it I love to be in plays I've done a lot of community theater acting but anyway so I didn't start singing till I was high school in choir and I I really never had anyone say, okay, now you have to breathe in and you have to breathe out and the vowel shapes have to be a certain way. I just evidently did all that and no one said to do that. Hmm. So when I took private voice lessons in college, um, I, they were now that I understand what happened, they were really coaching lessons and they weren't ever about technique. So I had a natural technique and so I didn't have to learn that. So I just learned repertoire. So then when I got this, when I was fortunate enough to get this position with the Big Rapids Public Schools, and I had to start teaching, you know, these choirs, um, the choirs kept growing and growing. And 
eventually that after that choir that met at lunchtime started meeting after school and there's there's 45 in it then there's 60 in it at one time there were 80 in it but so we go to our first msvma festival so i'm so excited to go to that first festival i had never been to an msvma festival i didn't grow up in michigan i don't know why i didn't know this i didn't have a mentor or anything so when i got to festival i just had one piece of music for the judge. Well, there were three judges. So, uh-oh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I always had my music <laughs> memorized. So I, I gave my music. The measures weren't numbered. All these, you know, sacred violations of protocol. <laughs> so, I, you know, that's where we were. And I, they knew, they sang in tune. They, all of the expressive part of the music was there. But they really sounded like musical theater singers. They sounded like Annie's. I mean... And they sang with their joy and their heart because that was really important to me. Mm-hmm. And we uh, didn't do well in this in the ratings department for our tone, but um, so we got a borderline two. And so that's I needed to learn how to do that, and I and I felt like a failure because I I couldn't I didn't know what to do. So I took this summer class at Calvin and wanted. Um, he talked a lot about focus and about w- the child's voice and where the resonance is. And he suggested that you have to develop your own tonal ideal. You have to know in your head what you want them to sound like. And if you want them to sound like musical theater, that's what they're going to sound like. So you need to um, start listening to recordings. So I bought every recording I could find. Of the, that's back when we had little cassette tapes. They didn't have CDs yet. So I had the American Boy Choir, I had the Toronto Children's Choir, I had the Indianapolis Children's Choir, and that's all I did anytime I was in my car, was I just listened and listened and listened, and those were good repertoire sources too. Then the next year when we went to the festival, I said, I got, became friends with the, the man that taught that class. I said, I'm so afraid, I'm so afraid to go to festival because what if they don't like the way they sound now? And he said, if they don't like the way they sound now, you come and see me. And then from then on, we got ones mm. every year at festival because I finally knew how to teach kids how to sing, how to create resonance. And I knew all the, the vocal um, warm-up things to do to access that part of their voice and all the little games you play. And so then I, that's when I started to feel like, oh, starting to get a handle on this. But it wasn't until I really knew how to teach choral pedagogy to children that I felt that way. What are some things that you did? Would you share some of that with us that you did to change the tone from the Annie Musical Theater to a warmer, you know? uh, There was this great book called Sing Legato. um, And my friend, you know, used that with us. I sang with him in symphony chorus in Grand Rapids. And so we used that. So I did, I did that. And in each exercise was about a, a certain musical thing, like sing, sing legato, sing smoothly. And so that, that was a way to learn how to sing legato. Staccato is short and snappy. Marcato is strong. That was in the minor mode. <laughs> I and, know what book you're talking about. Yeah. And I just, yeah, I'm like, I'm right here with you. <laughs> yeah, so, so I used that. And then just learning to, you know, having lots of conversations in that voice and maybe finding a cartoon character that you could replicate. And I had this one boy in my class that loved to do 
um, he ended up being an EMS driver, a person, and he loved making that sound. So Matthew would always be the one that helped us access, woo, you know, that part of your voice and doing stretches and sirens and converse, Julia, you know, eventually Julia Child, Mrs. Doubtfire tape conversations. Mm -hmm. I mean, just every time I would hear a new trick on how to do that, you know, we would do that. What's your favorite trick or tool in your bag? And I know you have so many, so it's going to be hard to choose. Oh, okay. So um, Charlotte Adams did this shtick. And so, and I've always done it whenever I've like done honor squires or there, I might have to tell you a couple of them. So one is she had these pictures of Tweety Bird. And um, so, you know, I'll bring out the picture of Tweety Bird. What do you see? Well, Tweety Bird's always excited, always the face is alive. And okay, so um, I want you to look at your neighbor and try to be this picture. And so what do you see? And then, well, they see that the eyebrows are up. There's lots of energy above the lips. And so I always thought that was a really good little visual trick. Mm. Um, yeah. You I'm, said you had several. I know, but I'm, I really want to know what those are. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, those expando geometric things. Yeah. 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 I can't remember what they're called, but expando geometric thing works perfectly. Okay. And so <laughs> they're real, they're small when they start out. And then when you pull on them, they get bigger and bigger and bigger. And so that's kind of how breath is. So you think of, and then you breathe in and expand. And this is a visual thing too. So the singers are watching it expand mm -hmm. and then it gets smaller. Oh, another one that my, that was part of this class that he suggested was you, and I've used this one a lot. You imagine that you have a tube around your waist. The ones that like the ones you've old um, car tire tubes that you float down the river on. And you have that around your middle and you're going to sip in air all the way around the, the inner tube. And so you are imagining that you have lips all the way around it. Okay. Now we're going to sip in through every lip and that, that, um, will remind us that we need to sip in from around the back also. I mean, it's not just here, it's all the way around. Mm -hmm. So I always thought that that was a good one. That's great. I love, um, all those just quick tricks, right? Those, and you earlier, you talked about interdisciplinary learning mm -hmm. and the things you're describing are exactly that mm -hmm. using visual mm -hmm. things to say, this is how we need to be singing. And those seem, at least for me to be, have been the most effective when I was learning mm -hmm. is relating singing to something else. I actually really enjoy sports analogies. Mm-hmm. I have not been a big sports person, but I, I respect it. And I know the work that it takes in, and we are much more connected, I think, than a lot of people even realize, mm -hmm. um, in our approaches. And so I love all of that connecting something to real life. Right. Oh, talking about sports. I forgot about this. When I was teaching high school, the, um, one of the language arts teachers, um, he was also the basketball coach. And we, at the, in the faculty room, you know, would be having conversations. And he realized how similar his coaching style was to my teaching style. So we wrote an article for the Michigan Secondary Principals Journal comparing 
um, the approach of a basketball coach with the approach of a vocal music teacher slash coach and how similar we were in the way we approached the students as human beings. Hmm. Um, and he was very successful. I mean, you know, he's always had winning seasons. But I just was so taken back when he sought me out to write this article that he saw the similarity, you know, before I ever did. How can people connect with you? How can they get in touch with oh, you or just, learn you more know, about you? You can give them my email address. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I mean... What is your email address? B-G-K-E-R-W-I-N at Gmail. Okay, great. I mean, or, if you know, if you email me and then we get that kind of relationship, I certainly will give you my cell phone number. And, you know, I'd rather talk to you in person anyway than, um, or on the phone rather than just email with you. I like hearing your voice. Is Voca Lyrica an audition group? No. So anyone can join? Yes. I feel very strongly that all God's children have a place in the choir. And I have singers in Vocal Lyrica that are, um, have their DMA in voice performance. And I have singers in Vocal Lyrica that you probably can hardly hear them. Mm-hmm. But they all have bring something to the experience. I mean, I only I had one time where somebody came and wanted to sing with us and it was awkward because um, she couldn't sing in tune and she was very loud. Mm-hmm. And um, so you, so with that person, I said, you know, I can just tell how much you're loving singing with us, but I know there's a few places where you're struggling with the pitches, so I'd be happy to meet with you privately so that you can, you know, we can all be on the same page or something like that. And then she, then she decided not to. Mm. And there have been times when people come and sung with us and they realize that they don't want to work that hard. So they don't, they say, you know, I just want to be in your audience because I don't want to work that hard. But I don't want to ever say no to someone that wants to sing. Hmm. How big is your group? Um, This year, this fall, we'll have between 45 and 50, I think. And how large could your group potentially get? I don't know. Some, you don't have a number in mind? No. Somebody asked me that once. I, you know, I don't know. I don't, I, don't, I don't think numbers. So if people are looking for a place to sing in the Big Rapids area, yeah. your choir is definitely yeah. an option. Yeah. Well, I, and I, I'm going to say, please, if you're in the area and want to <laughs> sing. Oh, and, you know, I, well, I, one of the things that really helped to cement, because that was kind of always my um, life philosophy that everyone should be able to sing because look at all the indigenous cultures we're singing. Everybody sings. Mm-hmm. When I visited South Africa, everybody sings. It's not like, oh, can I can I sing in your group? I mean, every it's a cradle to grave thing. Mm-hmm. And so I just really, I really believe that. And so I took this class one summer in the Gordon Learning Theory. And the teacher was talking about how breath is you audiate, you hear on the breath. That's where you, I mean, that's the analysis. That's how she analyzed it. And so for remediation, she suggested using those jumping, those little mini trampoline that you jump on, you know, for exercise. And, you know, she had kids in the class and she would show how that worked. So this is when I was teaching middle school because I had kids that just struggled matching pitch. And so I bought three of these trampolines. And so when it would come to assessment time, 
um, everybody would come up and get to jump on the trampolines. And then I would just walk up and down and listen to make sure they were all singing the right pitches. And the ones that had the most trouble got to jump on the trampoline longer. But I'm telling you, it always worked. It always worked. It always about the coordination of breathing with what you hear, with what you produce. And it reminded me of when I was a little girl. We used to jump rope all the time, and we'd have these little jingles we would sing. No one said, go green, go away, come on. Nobody did that. <laughs> Everybody always had a lilt to their voice. So if jumping rope, there's that jumping. It's a coordination of breath energy. So, yeah. That's so great. all God's children have a voice in the choir. If there was a question you wish I had asked you or something you would have liked to say that you haven't gotten a chance to say yet, what would it be? I would just say that I have been blessed in my family and in my marriage with um, especially my husband who believes that you are at your best when you are being when you are doing what you love to do. And so he never, ever has said to me, you shouldn't do that, or you spend too much time on that, or why aren't you ever home after school? It was always an understanding that that's who I was. And, you know, I guess that's been a blessing. Because if I'd been married to someone or had a family that, that, didn't like that or complained about it, then I, I I don't know what my life would have been like. Thank you for spending time with me today, Jenny. This has been really, really valuable and wonderful. And again, if you live in the Big Rapids area and you want a place to sing, you should definitely look for an opportunity to to sing under Jenny. Thank you. And it was a joy for me to be here with you too. Thank you for listening to Sing, Coach, Conduct. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please subscribe to the show by clicking the subscribe button.